Our episodes contain graphic information that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Would you like some murder with your coffee? Welcome to Morning Murders. I'm Nicole. I'm Amanda. And I'm Brenna. We're just three gals like to sit around, drink coffee, talk about true crime. Oh, oh yeah. Nailed it. Mm-hmm. Nailed that. True crime. True, true crime. Pow, pow. True, 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 true crime. Um, ladies and beans, so this one hits a little close to home for me. Uh, my dad actually knew folks that were involved in this one. Let's take a journey over to Salt Lake City. Have you ever heard of Mark Hoffman? Oh, you know who this is. Uh, So, um, I am from Salt Lake City originally. Uh, When my parents split up, we moved to, like, Arizona, and then later we moved to Vegas. Uh, My younger brother and I would visit my dad in Utah a lot, and I remember him telling us a little bit about this case when I was younger because he actually knew some of the people involved, like I mentioned. Uh, He didn't know Mark, but my dad was friends with uh, Mac Christensen, who was the father of one of the victims, and Joe Judd, who is one of Mark's mission companions. When he, because he was Mormon, so he went on a mission. Uh, but more on that later. Before I get too ahead of myself, let us grab our mugs and start at the beginning. If you haven't seen the documentary Murder Among the Mormons, I recommend it. It's on Netflix. Uh, I watched it when it first came out last year. And there were clips of the city in it that I know, so it was really weird watching it. I would pause and be like, holy moly, I've been there. I've totally driven by that place a dozen times with my dad. And that was like a really weird feeling. Um, I was actually talking to my friend Caitlin about this because she had a similar experience watching Night Stalker because she grew up in L.A. So like seeing places she knew from growing up in this documentary, like, you know, gives you like a weird feeling. So. Mark Hoffman, Mark William Hoffman, to be more precise, was born December 7th, 1954. He was raised Mormon and had very religious parents. Uh, He wasn't the brightest kid in school, but he got by. Uh, He had a few things outside of school that kept his attention more, like magic, stamp and coin collecting, chemistry, electronics. These things played a big part in his favorite pastime. Being a nerd. Well... Yes. Uh, He also claimed to have built a homemade metal detector to help him find things. He made it out of things he found around his house. Also, at a young age, it was said that he would make more than just metal detectors. It was rumored that as a kid, he and his friends made small bombs for fun and would set them off outside of Murray, Utah. Being a weird nerd... A dangerous nerd. Explosive nerd. Yeah, it gets worse. So Mark had another unique talent as a child. He enjoyed the art of forgery. He would forge rare mint marks on coins and then would take them to a collector, and the collector would say, hey, this is genuine. Can you imagine being this punk kid and you're, like, making these fake coins and, like, a legit collector tells you they're real? Like, that would make your head. So big. Right, you can get away with anything. The the dopamine that probably fired off at that moment, and he was never the same again, right? Mm -mm. Like, Talk about watering the wrong seed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, uh, I know he also used to, like, make, like, fake treasure, and he'd bury it, and he'd go out with his friends, and he'd be like, guys, look at what I found. And his friends would be like, oh, my God. Joseph Smith. 
Sorry. Well, I mean, we're going mean, to get there. I know we're going to get there. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it, the, this will also remind me of like geocaching, only like you usually find mm-hmm. weird things with geocaching. Not like, this is a treasure of money, but like that's basically what he's doing is fake, fake things. He's like, this is money and real. And all of his friends would be like, oh, my God, amazing. Anyways, so. He spent two years on an LDS mission, uh, which included Joe Jed, my dad's friend. Um, in 1973, he was sent to the England Southwest Mission, and he was based in Bristol. Uh, he claimed to have converted several folks out there, uh, but what he didn't tell anyone was that he looked into uh, Fawn Brody's book, No Man Knows My History, which is a skeptical biography of Joseph Smith. While in England, something happens that changes Mark's life, he begins to get very fascinated with history of the Mormon church and all of its documents that went along with it. He would visit bookstores to look for antique items relating to the church history as well as anti-Mormon books. When he got back from his mission, he decided to enroll as a pre-med major at Utah State University. Then, in 1979, he married Dora Lee Olds. They had four children together before their divorce in 1988. Um, She was actually uh, pregnant when he was sent to jail, uh, but back to the timeline of events that we're currently on. In 1980, Mark begins to make a living as an antiques dealer. Unknown to the people buying the items, however, they were forged and altered by Mark to appear to be items they were not. (laughs) He forged and altered coins, books, banknotes to make everything worth more money. Mm -hmm. He would forge signatures to increase the value of these items and even made up entire documents that somehow he discovered on his searches. Previously, unknown LDS documents were suddenly being discovered by Mark. I'm just imagining, like, where everyone's like, oh, we're all in this room. It's like whenever we hear about weird police searches where it's like, mm. oh, the drugs were on his body the entire time. <laughs> like, the, that's what that makes me right? think. It's like, we all looked in this room and he's like, but I found, look, Joseph Smith signed this and it's uh, <laughs> it's his hat. I wear this now. It's, it's his mine. hat. Yeah. Oh, God. Um, have you been, have you guys ever done, like, any, like, serious, like, like antique shopping where you have to talk to a person at the counter and I like have, have not. them appraise I something. I did that re- not appraise something yeah. for me, but I mean, I recently haggled a price for something at an antique store. Oh, fun. Um, <laughs> recently, well, within the past few years, I went with uh, with your fiance to go find you a present. Mm. So we went antiquing because we were like, obviously we want to find something that was like taken from a dead person. Yeah, you know, that's whatever. You know, that's, yeah. that'd be great. So we're looking for stuff. And we, we go, we went to like every antique shop that was on this like main drag of stuff. We went to like every single one in town <laughs> to find something. And we come to find out, like it was really hard to find good stuff because um, what will happen a lot is someone's grandparent will die, and then they'll be like, my grandmother told me a story about this piece of jewelry uh. her, my entire life, and then they bring it into a place to, like, get it, you know, sell Appraised. it or, you know, repraise or something, and, and most of the time they say, like, oh, it's actually from, like, the 70s, and it's glass. It's like, yeah, like costume mm-hmm. jewelry. It's costume jewelry. Yeah. It was, she told the story, not because she was lying to be a jerk, but because, like, you know, it's just, it was making it fantastical. Like, right. you're a child. You hear this from the time oh. that you're a child. Oh. You just believe it's true. Mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily make it true, but that's something that happens a lot, is people come in with jewelry that they're like, this was, my grandmother held it in her butt through the Holocaust, <laughs> and then it comes to find out, it's like, ah, it's from, you know, 
the 60s. No. <laughs> it's, it's green glass. doesn't make it any less important. It's right. still like, whatever. It's got a story attached to it. What mm. are our memories other than like what we'd say they are? You yeah, know, you exactly. can't go back and check. <laughs> right, right. Um, but that's like a really beautiful reason. Those, yeah, like, this things guy's are really an nice. asshole, yeah. These are worse. Yeah. Uh, he's a so he's dick. Yes. To put it in so many words. Uh, mm-hmm. So the first one uh, that was sold to the LDS church was the Anton transcript. Or Anthon transcript. Anthon transcript, because it's A-N-T-H-O-N. Anthon, right? Sure. Mark claimed that he had found this piece of paper plastered between two pages in a 17th century King James Bible. It was supposedly, according to the Mormon scripture Joseph Smith history, it was the transcript that Joseph Smith's scribe, Martin Harris, had presented to Charles Anthon, a Columbian classics professor in 1828. This Bible also seemed to have the signatures of Joseph's great-great-grandfathers inside of it. The transcript and its unusual reformed Egyptian characters were said to have been copied by Joseph from the Golden Plates, the same ones that he translated the Book of Mormon from. Anthon thought the esoteric-looking characters were actually Egyptian, but he wanted to access the plates, even though only Joseph could read them, right? That's what they say. Uh, Anthon's recollection of the transcript differed from the transcript currently possessed by the Community of Christ. Mark created this version to match Anthon's description. Now, this discovery put Mark on the map. It was a huge deal. Uh, Dean Jesse, the best-known hand-drawing and old document expert in the historical department of the LDS Church and editor of Joseph Smith Papers, said it was an authentic document. That April, they announced this discovery and bought it from Mark. Now, this is a historical document that has this new information on it. How much do you think the church bought it for? Do you remember if you watched the documentary? I watched the documentary, but I don't remember the price at all. Hmm. It's so crazy to just have this. It's just so, the weight, the amount of stuff. God, okay. It just gets um, so much worse. Yeah, right? Uh, yeah, I don't I'd know. I'd go with at least a million. A million. One million dollars. One million. So not quite that much, but oh, okay. more than $20,000. Ah, okay, all right. It was appraised by the church for 25000 They bought it along with a few other items in October. October 13th, which was a Monday. I just thought that was fun. I, like, looked Cute. it up. Uh, <laughs> so the items included a $5 gold Mormon coin, Deseret banknotes, and Deseret was uh, the proposed name in the 1940s by Mormon settlers for what is now Utah. Um, also, if you see those bookstores, it's like the Mormon bookstores. That's what they're called. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, so, and they also purchased the first edition of the Book of Mormon. People were super excited about these discoveries. Um, Hugh Nibley said the discovery promised as good a test as we'll ever get of the authenticity of the Book of Mormon. Oh. So uh, Mark dropped out of school, no need to be pre-med anymore, and went to full-time dealing in rare books. And the historical documents he discovered fooled many big-time experts and historians. So Richard and Joan Ostling later wrote that Mark was not only motivated by greed, but also by the desire to embarrass the church by undermining church history. And also, he was a closeted renouncer of the religion. So what else did he forge? At this time, the early 1980s, suddenly all these unknown LDS documents began to surface. Some as donations, others were purchased by the church. The Osselting said the church published some of the acquisitions. It orchestrated public relation for some that were known to be sensitive. Others it acquired secretly and suppressed. 
Then, in 1981, a document surfaced that claimed Joseph Smith had designated his son Joseph Smith III as his successor, not Brigham Young, which is the name we all know. Mm. Um, Hoffman arrived at the LDS headquarters with the document. The cover letter written by Thomas Bullock and dated January 27, 1865, had Thomas basically yelling at Brigham Young for destroying all copies of this blessing. Thomas still stated that he believed Brigham Young to be the true leader, but that he would still keep his copy of the blessing. Now, that makes Brigham Young look like a total jerk, right? Which, if true, would be bad for the Mormon church because, by extension, it puts the church in a really bad light. So, as a faithful Mormon, Mark brought this document to Gordon B. Hinckley, a member of the First Presidency. It was, of course, another forged document, but the church did not know that until afterwards. Oh, my God. This was one of those, we gotta buy it and bury it type of deals. Or so Mark thought. There was more hesitation in its purchase than he expected. Um, Hinckley filed the letter in a safe place at the first president's office. The letter was later given to the RLDS Church, which is the Community of Christ, but at the time it was known as the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from 1872 to 2001. The church is the second largest with members in the 250,000s. So the Utah church hesitated, and then the Missouri church hesitated about purchasing this letter. As a good Mormon, though, Mark then took it to his own church. All the churches were in a panic about the order of succession now. So Mark, of course, made his course of action force the drama to be public. The New York Times caught wind of what was going on, and the next day, the LDS church made the headlines. Mormon document raises doubts on successions of church leaders. Now, the LDS Church was forced to go public with this document that they were trying to hide. During this scramble, Mark realized that he had power to menace and manipulate his church leaders with nothing more sinister than a sheet of paper. Oh he was discovering this newfound enormous power he had over the church. Salt Lake City District Attorney had investigator Michael George dig into Mark as things were later uncovered, and he believed that Mark's goal was to create the lost 116 pages of the Book of Mormon. These pages would have been filled with things that damaged the church. Michael thought that Mark would sell it to the church to be hidden away, but then, of course, find a way to make the document public. Then, in 1984, the most notorious of Mark's forgeries appears. Do you remember what it is? The Salamander Letter. So, oh, right, right, right. so this letter was said to be written by Martin Harris to William Wines Phelps. It was about the golden plates and how they were discovered. Does that ring any bells? Mm -hmm, a little bit. So in this letter, it says that the recovery of the golden plates that everyone knows is wrong. So for most of us, thanks to the hit musical Book of Mormon, we know this story. Basically, the angel Moroni appears to Joseph and leads him to the golden plates. Well, in this letter, it makes it clear that Joseph Smith had been practicing money digging through magical practices, and instead of an angel, it was a white salamander that spoke to him. The letter was donated to the church by Stephen Christensen, who bought it for Mark for $40,000. It became public knowledge shortly after. Apostle Dylan Oaks told Mormon educators that the term white salamander could mean the angel. In 1820s, the word salamander could have referred to magical creatures that live in fire. He said that a being that is able to live in fire is a good approximation of the description Joseph Smith gave of the angel Moroni. 
Now, what blows my mind, though, is that all of this panic and excuse was actually for nothing because Mark completely made the whole thing up. So they're, like, scrambling to be like, well, could have meant this, which, which still lines up. He just he was literally fucking with them and mm-hmm. made up this wow. whole thing. I mean, he must have felt so powerful. Ugh, it's awful. He took advantage of people's faith and just used it to manipulate them. And I'm not a religious person, but I would never use someone's faith to, like, trick or destroy them. Religion, you know, it can be a good thing. It's more like when people's corrupt messages get involved and they take advantage of all the good people. Um, But anyways, that's a story for another day. Fortunately, there are a lot of religious-based cases we could talk about where that very thing happens. Kind of like when, you know, we've been talking about sociopaths. When a sociopath finds its place as a leader, no matter what it is, can just go very wrong. Anyways, Mm -hmm. I digress. In 1984, two critics of the LDS Church spoke up. Gerald and Sandra Tanner. They were among the first to say the letter was a fake. They also claimed that others from Mark were a fake. And what's funny, like not ha funny, but like what's funny is they're critics of the church. So these documents would have actually helped their case against the religion. But they put all of that aside and were like, no, these are fakes. Well, I mean, it's almost like I feel like that's the best time kind of person to find out that this stuff isn't real. Right. right. Like that's that's exactly mm-hmm. what you want. You want somebody that criticizes it to then go. Mm, hold on a second. Like, but even we just want the truth, and this isn't the truth. Right. Yeah. So, however, document expert Kenneth W. Rendell claimed that the ink, paper, and postmark were all of the period. He said, there is no indication the document is a forgery. But boy, does he pull that comment back later by saying that while there was the absence of any indication of forgery in the letter itself, there was also no evidence that it was genuine. Is there <laughs> like is there like a um like I'm trying to think of what what is what is it? Is it that the that the the people that go into the field of researching these documents um like have a faulty education? Like I'm trying to figure out like what why is it that this got passed by so many people? And also, what else gets passed by, like, uh, our experts or other experts or experts mm-hmm. of every faith, like, all the time? Absolutely. And then, like, on top of that, like, yeah, sorry. That's just, I was like, what the fuck is all these, like... Well, it's, it's, is, it like is it, like, being, like, a, uh, like a Sauvignon, like, where you're, like... Um, like it's all made up like when you like all the wine tasting stuff is totally mm. like made up and like whatever it's just like people yes anding each other because they don't want to be wrong like what is happening I think, I think it's kind of like that it's yeah. a yes and thing because they want it to be real yeah like this is their faith and their their beliefs and their religion they want more they want to find these missing things they want to they want proof Mm -hmm. like that's what you know everybody wants proof of what happens when you die and proof that you're living the right life and you're following the right god whatever it is and like that's what it is so he's preying on their faith of just wanting these things to be real and then also not wanting to be real when they're like these negative things right they're like okay we gotta bury that so he's just playing on their faith because he knows that they want to write the story in truth they want to tell what the story is and if it doesn't fit their narrative they're gonna bury it Mm -hmm. and how much money is that worth so This guy was fooled, Uh, and he wasn't alone. It took the careful and detailed skills of two document experts to finally find cracks in this seemingly perfect artifacts. But this happens during the trial. But before we get there, there are a few more documents to chat about which lead to the murders. Truthfully, no one really knows how many pieces Mark forged. I mean, honestly, I feel like anything he gave or sold people is probably fake. I can't imagine him actually finding anything genuine to be, yeah. to be honest. 
Um, there was a letter from Joseph Smith's mother, Lucy Mack Smith, that spoke about the origin of the Book of Mormon. Uh, there was a letter from uh, Martin Harris and from David Whitmere, who were two of the three witnesses. Uh, they talked about their visions. Um, there was a contract between Smith and Egbert Bratt Grandin about printing the first edition of the Book of Mormon. And these two pages that were dictated from Joseph Smith by Oliver Cowdery that were supposed to be from the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon. A year before the Salamander Letter in 1983, Mark sold a 1825 Joseph Smith holograph letter, which means that it's a manuscript handwritten by the person who is the author. So this letter said that Joseph had been treasure hunting and practicing black magic for like five years before he had his first vision. And that's like a super yikes for the church. So Mark had the Joseph Smith signature confirmed by a man named Charles Hamilton, the contemporary dean of American autograph dealers. So it's a big deal for him to be like, this is real. Uh, the church bought it for $15,000 and Mark was like, don't worry, no one else has a copy of this letter. But then, of course, it gets leaked to the press and the church is forced to release it to the public. But how was Mark getting away with finding all these documents and not raising suspicion? Yeah, seriously. Yeah, what the fuck? So he told people that he used a network of tipsters and he would track down modern relatives of early Mormons. Also, that he had gotten these 19th century letters from collectors who didn't realize the contents but had saved them because of their postmarks. How convenient. Oh, now, he did not just do LDS documents, though. He also forged signatures of other famous folks. George Washington, John Adams, John Quincy Adams, Daniel Boone, John Brown, Andrew Jackson, Mark Twain, Nathan Hale, John Hancock, Francis Scott Key, Abraham Lincoln, John Milton, Paul hell? Revere, Miles Standish, and Button Gwinton, who I guess was the rarest signature of the folks who signed the Declaration of Independence. Gotta catch them all. Oh my god, <laughs> yeah, he's literally, that's so, what, what, this, this resume is almost too good to be true. Also, he channeled his inner Emily Dickinson and forged an unknown poem by her. But the craziest was the Oath of a Free Man. It was a one-page oath from 1639. Now, there were 50 copies made of it, and it was the first document printed in Britain's American colonies. None were said to have survived, and if one did, it would be worth over a million dollars in 1985. So Mark's people hopped on that and started negotiating with the Library of Congress. Now, despite all of this money he was getting, he was deeply in debt. He decided to live large with the money he was bringing into his family. He loved buying first edition books, apparently. Um, to get himself out of debt, he started the sale of the McLeland Collection. This was an extensive group of documents written by William E. McLean, who was an early Mormon apostle that ended up leaving the church. Mark dropped a bunch of hints that these newfound documents would be real, real, real bad for the LDS church. But the catch? Mark didn't know where these documents were, and he didn't have enough time to make them. I would be so concerned. Like, if I were one of these, like, higher-ups in the Mormon church, I would just be so, like... Like, how stressful must this be to constantly have something coming in to, like, say that your faith isn't, like, what you thought it was. Like, mm -hmm. all of the time in the 80s now by the same dude. Mm -hmm. I would be so, I would just be, like, I don't know. I just, I'm trying to put myself in those shoes, like, as a, like, being somebody 
in my normal life doesn't have a ton of faith in stuff, like mm-hmm. trying to put myself in those shoes of believing in something like that, because I believe in some stuff, right? But to suddenly have like so much of it get like the rug swept out from underneath it all in within the span like, of like a decade. Yeah, what an mm-hmm. existential crisis to be like, who am I? Yeah. What do I believe? What's real? Yeah. Yeah, this fucking... Oh, yeah. Um, but things were starting to catch up with Mark. So he was starting to feel like he was getting backed into a corner. Um, folks he'd sold items to or promised items to, he owed money to, they all started to get on his case about things. And the oath of a free man was not being sold as quickly as he wanted it to be. Uh, there were holdups and questions about its authenticity. Oh, no. So Mark took things into his own hands. Ladies and beans, grab that wonderful elixir we call coffee because here come the murders. <gasps> bum, 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 that was beautiful. Uh, so Mark was a tinkerer, even as a kid, like I mentioned earlier. He was supposedly making bombs with his friends, even as a child. Uh, October 15th, 1985, Mark set a bomb at an office. It was the office of financial advisor and collector of historical documents, Steve Christensen. Steve had bought some of Mark's Mormon church-related items, including the Salamander letter I mentioned earlier. Fearing that Steve was going to expose him as the fraud he was, he set the homemade bomb to kill Steve. And unfortunately, Mark was successful. Uh, Steve was killed in the explosion, and his secretary was severely wounded. Two hours later, there was another explosion, this time at a home. Mark claimed that he never intended to hurt anyone in this bombing. He only wanted the police to link it to Steve's office. So the home belonged to Kathy and J. Gary Sheets. J. Gary worked with Steve at the CFA Financial Services. The bomb went off in the couple's home while Kathy was there killing her. The next day, a third bomb went off, this time in a car. A car belonging to Mark Hoffman. His legs were seriously injured from the explosion. Now, he was getting the bomb ready for his next target while he was parked near Temple Square. He became an immediate suspect in the other two bombings due to his debt and inability to deliver the McLeland collection. Because it didn't exist. Right. Uh, The bombings were investigated, which led the team to discover the forgeries. At Mark's house, there was a room he always kept closed, and his wife, Dory, never even went into it. Um, Inside, they found evidence of forgeries and all the gizmos and gadgets you would need to do them. I was hoping it was just like a grill room. Oh, (laughs) yeah. And they found his grill room. And he's got got a a I'm sure if he smoked weed, he'd probably would have chilled chilled out out and had a different hobby. Right. I wish it was a grill room. No, but instead, they found evidence uh, like an engraving plate where the forged plate of the Oath of Freeman had been made. Whoops. Whoops. Uh, Two document examiners um, are to thank for bringing the case of the Salamander letter to a close. To best explain it, though, I thought that I would just read an excerpt from the Western Forensic Document Examiner.com. George Throckmorton was a document expert at the Utah Attorney's General Office. He was never asked to help at first, so he started doing his own research on this high-profile case and was approached by a professor of church history. He began to see all the reports from the experts and found the letter had never been dated. Only two main parts of it had been thoroughly examined, the ink and the paper. The paper used was 100% rag paper and the ink was an iron galotanic composition. Both of these were used in the 19th century when the letter was supposedly written. Mark Hoffman could have written on old paper with an iron galotanic ink 
Uh, George went to the county office and explained how just the old paper and old ink didn't prove much. He then got started with a more in-depth research with William Flynn, another document examiner. Experts were skeptical that they'd find anything because the letter had already been authenticated by many experts. And the FBI lab in Washington, D.C. even said it was the real deal. Right. The two men began examining the documents upon a closer look under the microscope. George examined that there was a cracking pattern in the ink. Upon further research, they figured out that all the documents that Mark Hoffman found had these same microscopic crack patterns in the ink. Then they found a seemingly insignificant note from the church's early history, but it had Joseph Smith's signature on it, which increased the value of this note. On examining the text on this note, they found the text on the front had no cracking. But Joseph Smith's signature on the back had the same cracking pattern as the rest of Mark's found documents. So George and William figured that Mark must have signed the back of this note to increase its value. So the note itself was real, but Mm -hmm. the signature was not. Mm. The cracked ink on these documents pointed to a forgery. To make newer paper and ink to appear old, it has to be artificially aged. So William knew that certain chemicals could oxidize the iron component of this ink, and he also figured that Mark would have used a product that was easily accessible. He tried both household ammonia and sodium hydroxide, and they both worked, but the ink mixture he made, it wasn't cracking the ink like it did in the letter with the other documents. The only other thing that he and George could figure was that the ink they made and were testing must have been different from Mark Hoffman's ink. Eventually, they found the exact formula of the 19th century iron ink that Mark Hoffman had used. They were missing gum Arabic in their ink. When they tried to duplicate Mark's technique again, they used the same ink and exposed it to sodium hydroxide. The ink then showed the exact same cracking pattern that it did in Mark Hoffman's documents. Um, The gum used in Mark Hoffman's ink underwent a dramatic change when exposed to sodium chloride. It caused the gum to go from a thin fluid to a brittle material that would crack when it dried quickly. So George and William started to find other signs as they examined the documents from Mark Hoffman. Under exposure to ultraviolet light, a feathering effect could be seen on some of the documents. This happens when the ink on a document bleeds and runs, usually meaning that the paper had been hung to dry. So they show this process on the series Murder Among the Mormons, too, which is really cool to look at. They, like, show how all the process that they do. Um, All the folks they got to come in and talk about it is really fascinating and also a bit heartbreaking because there were people on there that speak that just were so upset and in shock by what Mark was able to do for so long and, like, trick them. Um, So Mark was arrested in 1986 for forgery and murder, and by January 1987, he pleads guilty to second-degree murder and theft by deception to avoid the death penalty. Because as you may recall from Gary Gilmore and the Hi-Fi Murders, Utah has the death penalty. Um, Just as a little refresher, uh, Utah was the first state to bring back the death penalty in 1976 when Gary Gilmore chose to be executed via firing squad rather than by hanging. Utah is the only state to execute inmates by firing squad in the modern era. Today, if lethal injection is held unconstitutional, they will do firing squad. Or if an inmate had selected firing squad before May 3rd, 2004. Before 1976, Utah executed 46 inmates. Since it was reinstated in 1976, they have executed seven. 
Most of you know how I feel about the death penalty, but I'll remind you that one in ten inmates waiting to be executed are in fact innocent or wrongfully convicted and shouldn't be on death row. But back to Mark. So he confessed to the forgeries in court, and in 1988, he was sentenced to life in prison. Before the Utah Board of Pardons, Mark made this confession about the bomb he planted at Kathy Sheets' house. It was almost a game. At the time I made the bomb, my thoughts were that it didn't matter if it was Mrs. Sheets, a child, a dog, whoever. So after Mark was imprisoned, his wife filed for divorce. He overdosed on antidepressants, attempting to commit suicide. He was found and saved, but not before he blocked his right arm circulation so severely that his forging hand is now permanently disabled. He is still in prison in Utah. So something positive that happened after all this went down is the path that Dora Lee Olds, or Dory, Mark's now ex-wife, took. So she is the co-founder of a holistic healing company, School of Creation, in Mill Creek, Utah. She calls herself the Creation Coach. She found healing through hypnosis. She focuses all of her energy into helping others get out of difficult situations, including simply being stuck in a negative mindset. She is a board-certified consulting hypnotist, Reiki master, and lymphatic massage therapist. She helps people lose weight, quit smoking, and build confidence. She works with children and women mostly. And after she left Mark, they only spoke through letters while he was in jail, and only really about the kids and some news reports that came out in 2015. She had to get help from her family to stay afloat when everything went down. Uh, She was left with very little and had very little experience to help herself and her kids. The kids were bullied in school when their father got arrested, and things were really difficult for them for a while. Media and others were convinced that she knew what Mark had been up to and made sure she knew that. It took a long time, but she did pick her and her family back up again, and now she loves helping others do the same. When she meets and helps women in similar situations like herself, she loves being able to help them. She told Heavy.com writer Alyssa C., I see their pain, their stuckness. They've done the best they can with where they are, and I can now give them true love and compassion. Only to the extent that I truly love myself can I truly love another. And that, my ladies and beans, is the insane and bizarre case of Mark Hoffman. To this day, they are still not sure of all the documents he forged. Any final sips? I feel like... People who take advantage of others because of their beliefs are garbage. Like, if you're not hurting anybody, let people believe what they want to believe. And please just try not to exploit each other, maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's just unfortunate. It's really unfortunate. Mm-hmm. It's fun to watch a story about what happens when you lie big. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. It's, it it's, never ends up okay. Yeah. No. It will always come fun, back to bite Just you. like compelling and fascinating to watch like an entire story of what happens when you start a lie and then don't get caught. You gotta double down. And then mm-hmm. you gotta double, triple down. And then suddenly you're spending all that money that you got perpetuating that lie. So mm-hmm. you have to make another lie and then pay for that and all that kind of stuff. And once you get away with it. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have to keep up with the lie. And then you have to be bigger lies mm-hmm. so that you can cover the other lies. Especially if it's your career and you're trying to make money off of it. You got to yeah. keep getting bigger or you're not going to make the money you want. Right. Yeah. He's a selfish, horrible person who took advantage of people um, in a 
place that they are supposed to feel safe, right? Like, yeah. people choose religion to feel safe most of the time, right? And so, like, he took advantage of that and the way that they felt. And unfortunately, uh, innocent people, I mean, they're all innocent. Like, Steve and Kathy were in this, in the 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 worst place because he just killed them. He killed them. Yeah, because no he because he was covering his tracks and, right. and covering up the lie and it was getting too big and he felt like he was backed mm-hmm. in a corner. So instead of like, I don't know, coming clean, which he would never do that, right? He killed people. He set up bombs. He made bombs and killed people. Like it's awful. How crazy that that's uh, the progression, right? Like we 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 do this a lot. We talk about the progression of. Um, people a lot how they go from you know what might be a reason why you Mm -hmm. know like and you can kind of see like sometimes there's a full paper trail and it sounds like this guy had a full progression it's always so interesting that it just it always goes to murder it's like Mm -hmm. the or taking someone else's life and justifying that it's Mm -hmm. like the peak of what you think you can get away with it's also like the most boring way to write a scene. Like it's like the most boring writing. Just the first thing is you start out with the stakes being so high and you got to get to murder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's like, "Geez, dude, you are so creative and capable of doing so many incredible things. Obviously, if you can make these forgeries that people can not discern between real life or not, mm-hmm. like and instead you have to make a career out of it." You couldn't have just, like, drawn beautiful unicorns and sold them at (laughs) art fairs around the world. Work for, like, be patient enough to live long enough to work for Disneyland. Or (laughs) figure out when things are fake and, you know, work for either the FBI or the other way around. Yeah, Yeah. or work for a museum and be like, this is a fake. You could have got a deal. Yeah. Use your powers for good. Yeah. Final yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Yeah, like the two forensic document experts that did crack it, literally crack it because they find cracks. Right? It's just so they crack again. Crack. <laughs> 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 it's just so fascinating and amazing that they did that. And like, basically on their own, nobody had really approached them to do this until like later on. And they're like, Nah, something's going on here, mm-hmm. and we're gonna figure it out. It's just so neat. Um, it just is really unfortunate that it took some people losing their lives before any of that really happens. What I guess, too, is that you have to start... There has to be something that makes you look at it in a different direction or with different reasoning, right? It's kind of like, you know, if there's something going on in your body, and, like, for example, my mom had uh, was having seizures, right? And so for the longest time, they were doing all these x-rays of her and MRIs of her brain because they're like, seizures, brain, like something's going on there. Um, but they didn't think of, like she had a neck injury when she was younger and literally it was like four inches down. Like they were, they did all, we did all this stuff for like decades trying to find all this stuff. And it's because they were looking at it from a one perspective of it being like, it's the brain, not knowing that it was the spine. Mm. Like it was just down like a few inches. So it's like that kind of thing where if you're not looking at those documents, even like for forgery as like continued the same thing, I can see how that could go by. Whereas these people were like, let's look at this with the intention of finding what this could be and that's why they were able to find those cracks like your brain you're just looking at it from a different perspective yeah other than like trying I don't know like I just feel like it's different like if two different people are coming at it when they don't believe in it even so it's that perspective too it's like well I'm just gonna find out why this isn't real 
period. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like trying not to be blinded by your faith too, mm-hmm. right? And that, I mean, relating that to um, like police work, like investigators will get blinded by their idea of what's mm-hmm. happening, right? They get tunnel vision. And I feel like that's a lot of what happened is there was tunnel vision that it's real. But you can also look at it from a positive aspect where, you know, innocent until proven guilty. Let's prove that this is real. Like it's real. Let's yeah. prove that it's real. Yeah. You know, instead of like, let's prove that it's fake you can also say if you're trying to be more positive you can say well let's prove it's real because Mm -hmm. you're still going to find the same outcome if you're truly doing the work Mm -hmm. if you're truly trying to do innocent until proven guilty you're still going to find the truth if they're innocent or guilty if you're taking it from either perspective but taking it from an innocent perspective you're more likely to not accidentally incarcerate someone who is innocent right because you're coming from an innocent perspective mm-hmm. if you're coming from a guilty perspective you're odd they're guilty it's that bias baby. yeah mm-hmm. exactly and so that's i think that there was a lot of blinded by that sort of biased opinion mm-hmm. of what the documents were well damn i yeah. appreciated your retelling of it because i think i did watch this but it just kind of was like not that it went over my head or anything like that i think i just didn't absorb it the same as when i got to listen to you say it mm-hmm. so, yeah. yeah i reached out to my dad while i was writing it too cuz i wanted to make sure i i remembered the names of the people that he knew but yeah he knew steve's dad mac um cuz that was really hard and then he knew joe um who was the kid who or at the time was a kid on on a it's mission with him not a gigantic city i would imagine mm-hmm. that this like completely rocked it mm-hmm. for right. a really long time mm-hmm. so i would imagine like that it really screwed up a lot of people that lived there. Oh, yeah. I remember being young and, like, my dad, we were, like, driving in, I think it was, like, downtown Utah or whatever it's called, and we drove past, like, the big, beautiful Mormon um, church. The temple. Uh-huh, mm. yeah, the beautiful temple. My friend got married there. She's so pretty. Uh, she's so pretty. I can't go in there because I'm not Mormon. But we drove by it, and I remember, like, that was a moment when he was like, oh, yeah, there was a guy once who, like, made up a bunch of documents. And I was, like, pretty young, but I, like, remember him vaguely, like, mentioning that. And so when this came out, all of that, like, those tiny memories came forward. And I was like, oh, my God, my dad's talked about this before. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, yeah. But uh, thanks for going on that journey with me. I know it's a lot, especially when, like, I don't know the Mormon religion crazy well. Like, a lot of these names were over my head, except for, you know, like, Brigham Young I know and Joseph Smith I know. Um, but all these other little names, I don't know. But I have a lot of friends that do because I have a lot of friends that are Mormon. So, And I know you guys don't super know them either. So thank Mm-mm. you for going on that journey yeah. with me. Yeah. And Beans, thank you for sharing your coffee with us or mm-hmm. tea or whatever it is that you're drinking today. Um, yeah, it's just another another one of those Crazy cases. On Morning Murders. Thank you for listening to Morning Murders. Remember to stop by every Monday for a new episode. And you can always check out our resources and mental health links in our show notes. If you enjoyed listening to our highly caffeinated conversation, please leave us a five-star rating and check us out on Instagram. At Morning Murders. That's at O-U-R-N-I-N-G-M-U-R-D-E-R-S. If you have any stories you'd like to hear discuss around the breakfast nook, email us at morningmurders at gmail.com. Thank, Thank you, you for listening! Because <laughs> all of my cuts sweat, right? Sweat. Sweat! Sweat, unless they're in a water bottle like this. They all sweat. <laughs> my God! Like the Highlander. Oh. There can only be one. Mm-hmm. I read that somewhere. That's I read that. That's yep. Oh, it's on that. the internet, so it must be true. I read it.
out of things he just found around the ha- his house. He made it. Thank you. Before we get Say what's your flight, bitch? What's your flight? What's your flight, bitch? Oh, yeah. What's your flight, bitch? What's your flight, bitch? I was thinking, um, uh, motor and what's your Oh, that's a cute little mug. Okay, ghost mug. A little ghost mug. Boo. Boo, I'm a ghost. Boo. Boo. Boo, I'm a ghost. Boo. Boo, I'm a ghost. Okay. Boo, guess what? You were leaning in. I was like, is she going to say something else? No. I <laughs> You're just, just getting ready to do morning Because I knew it was coming. Yes, yes. I understand now. I know the, yeah, I know the, the format. I know the format. Yes. I know the format. It's formative. It's a formative format. It's a formative format.